Welcome to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with Opera Holland Park's director of opera, James Clutton. In conversation with creatives and collaborators, we explore the process of putting opera on stage and how the artists involved approach their craft. Hello, I'm James Clutton. Welcome to From the Producer's Office. Today, my guest is someone I admire very much, not only for amazing talent on stage, but for the non-stop working for uh, the business of our profession as a whole and uh, the professionals that inhabit that business. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome mezzo-soprano Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Jen. Hello, James. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. <laughs> no, we were just saying, it's always a weird <laughs> question, isn't it? Yeah, but it's all, it's all good. Listen, let's dive straight in and just um, right, go, go back a bit. And um, when you were growing up, was there classical music around the house a lot? Is that what first permeated through to you? come from a musical family in the sense that everybody certainly on my mum's side always played instruments my granddad played the organ and piano my grandmother played the accordion actually very well um and my mum can sing my dad can sing right. but there was never any professional music i right. mean there was there was no sort of suggestion that well anybody would go into music in our in the generations in our family right. Um, I think growing up in Liverpool, of course, pop music was very much at the fore. Um, and yeah, you so, had a few bands come out of there. Only a few. No one's ever heard of them, though. <laughs> um, and so it meant that um, I came out of nowhere, really, particularly with the voice, kind of voice that I have. Right. Um, it, it's just one of those things, isn't it? I'm not saying I'm a freak, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I am, suppose, saying that like anybody genetics are a marvelous thing and, and you don't know until you growing mm. up in terms of voices what's going to happen to a voice even particularly when hormones set in as a teenager that that's a really sort of weird time you can't mm. tell at that point mm. um you know all sorts going on in bodies um mm. it it therefore meant that um when it came to sort of going into a career in music my family had little idea of what was going to be involved yeah. so um, it's been a, a journey, let's say. But was opera played around the house at all, or did you just hear yeah. that on the radio? Or how did that come through to you? Um, well, it was interesting. I mean, I suppose if you grow up like I did in a church choir, it, it isn't opera, but of course it is classical yeah. music. Yeah. Um, and I was in the church choir from when I was seven mm. till I left home to go to university. Wow. Um, so I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Once you discover you're good at something, then you start sort of developing ideas about, well, in my case, repertoire. I also had a really brilliant teacher who, mm. she's a very, very old lady now. She's in her very late 90s. Mm. Um, and she'd retired from teaching musical theatre students at the Oldham Theatre School and come to live locally. And um, I don't know how my mum found out about it, but her name's Frida Bevan. She she was extraordinary and so sensible. And the moment I started having lessons with her when I was 13, she had me sing things like Aria Antique, which are very yeah. sort of sensible things for somebody with a developing voice to learn. Yeah. And then somebody bought me a CD of Kiri Takanoa. Yeah. And um, it, it really showed me what else was out there, I suppose. It was one of these compilation best of yeah. things. Um, and I remember listening to that thinking, wow, what a sound. I mean, how extraordinary that a human can 
do that. I wonder what else is out there for me. And so at 15, having been rejected from the National Youth Choir completely, they were mm. not interested. Um, I joined the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Choir and my first concert, I mean, it's extraordinary now, and I've spoken to her about it, um, was Dream of Gerontius with Catherine Wynne Rogers as the angel. <laughs> and um, and uh, Anthony Rolfe Johnson as as the spirit, the, wow. you know, Jontius. Um, it, it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. And I came out thinking, gosh, there are people that sound like me. Because yep. even then I had a very unusual sound, still yep. do. Still don't easily categorize well. <laughs> um, and Catherine's voice was, was, I mean, it's still extraordinary live and it was extraordinary mm. then live. And, and it was really inspirational. And I think had I not heard that, I don't know, you never know, do you, what would have happened? But it no. certainly set off a chain of events then because I thought, well, if that's, if it's possible to sound the way I do and be a singer, then mm. I'll, I'll keep going. It's really interesting. You know, so two things on that. One is that I've lost count of how many times on here someone's talked about a particular teacher that has just sparked it or just opened a particular door. It's a really great thing for, for these people, what they, what they did to all these uh, great performers of our age. Um, but I think that, as in not our age, because I'm a lot older than you, but our, our, our era. Um, but I think that the other thing is that it's just that thing of when you suddenly realize it could be a profession or it could be a, it's a vocation anyway and then suddenly the merging of those two things and thinking i could do this and it's an it's amazing moment i spoke to so many people it's great to hear you say that um so we don't we don't talk about the national youth music choir then no the national youth choir is not, was was a hilarious thing really because um a phone call came through oh it was quite a long time ago now maybe seven seven or eight years ago um, to ask if I'd like to do a prom with the National Youth Choir and the National Youth Orchestra. And I did say to my agent, oh, the irony. You know, here I am at the proms as a soloist. <laughs> and they did not want me in the choir. That is it's, really, it's really quite funny. That's I just remember one. that audition. I remember walking in and I knew I sang well. And then... Um, How old would you have been then, more or less? <sighs> probably 13 or 14 well, yeah um and I just I just you know when the atmosphere in the room is a particular way and yeah. I knew when I came out that they weren't interested and I think it's because I don't have this sort of standard voice mm. I mean even then my voice didn't sound small um and I think maybe that was the issue because I was singing as <laughs> a soprano then um yes. and by the time I became a choral scholar at Cambridge University um my voice had changed even from the point where I auditioned and I only lasted a year in the choir. Oh, right. And the last thing I did with the choir, which is what prompted me to leave, was being put by myself down the other end of the chapel because I was so loud that they couldn't balance the recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right okay. on the wall. <laughs> How brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, well, I mean, you've obviously had a, a well, and having um, until right this moment, um, with this little um, break, um, fantastic international career. I've seen you. I've seen you on stage at the Scala in Turn of the Scrooge. Remember when I saw you out there? It was great. It was great. Um, but that's involved a lot of travelling. How do you cope with that? Because you you're often uh, performing internationally rather than in the UK, aren't you? 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, people talk about choices, but in some ways you, you don't really make choices a lot of the time. You can only accept the work that comes in for you. Mm. It's other people really that choose. They choose whether to offer you it in the first instance. Mm. And so it hasn't been a choice for me to not work in the UK. It's been that, you know, when La Scala come ringing, you don't yeah. really say no if you're available, certainly. Absolutely. And um, certainly not for roles like Mrs. Gross in Turn of the Screw, which I didn't think I'd be doing at the stage of the career that I am now. Yeah. You know, you never know. Directors perceive roles differently depending on their, their concept of the piece. And very often Mrs. Gross will be played by an older woman. Yeah. Um, but in fact, Casper uh, Holton, who directed that, um, I asked on the first day of rehearsals, well, how old is she? And he said, she, she's you. She's yeah. the age you are now. Great. Um, and so that, that's the thing, isn't it? We, we make choices perhaps in, in as much as if a role comes off, is offered and it perhaps is too big, which has happened a couple of times with La Scala in particular, where I mm. felt just, I'm just not ready for the mega dramatic repertoire. Really? Right. Um, yes, I, I think... I think there are things that I would like to leave until I'm a bit older. And mm. the danger is, of course, if you accept those things, um, everyone else thinks you can do them then and you, there's no turning back. No, indeed. So, so that, that is a choice. But, but for the most part, you, your career will take the path it's going to take. I mean, it, it, it is very much a question of, I suppose, relationship management within the, that path as to what, what the next steps will be. But... Um, you know, I'm always somebody who, well, tries my best. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the thing also is, I think that, because I say this to a lot of singers just leaving college, that often, even though it's difficult, because especially when you leave college, you just want to work, that sometimes the, the most important decisions are the roles you turn down rather than the ones you take, because then you're absolutely burdened by that's what you do. And if, if you're not quite ready for it, you get really you know, hemmed in on that sort of stuff and really well, that very off. dangerous, vocally. Very dangerous, yeah. Because um, I think I can see it, because young singers particularly want to think, oh, I've been offered that at that place. I've got to take it for a number of reasons, because it's a job, it's money, that they won't rip, they won't forgive me if I don't. But sometimes the better thing is to say, no, not right now. Can I do something else for you? Because it's a dangerous thing. But very it's very hard to know how to approach it. But um I completely agree with that. As many a time we've said, let's just offer you something a little bit smaller because, and let's just get you in and see you settled before you just jump straight into something. Um, I think the thing that young singers don't understand until you're there really is the pressure that is involved in doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Yeah. It's, there's big enough pressure when you're doing the right things. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good I mean, point. Like just using turn of the screw as an example, I mean, I hadn't, that wasn't my debut at La Scala anyway. Um, but I, the curtain goes up in that production. And the only thing you see is me. Mm. Well, on a platform, which in fact was very high, a three-story yes. tower, yeah. um, which had no safety harnesses on it at all. Wow. And I had to sing in time with an orchestra that I couldn't hear very well. Right. And you, you don't realise until you're there looking out onto a theatre like La Scala how much pressure you get yeah. from literally just looking at the auditorium because of the nature of it and the fame yeah. it carries. Yeah. Um, those things all count uh, towards a situation where unless you're ready 
unless you have the strength of character and the experience, you could crumble quite easily. Yeah. And nobody wants to see that of a young singer. No. Um, so it, I think just a bit of sense is... Helpful. But I think also it's who you listen to when you're a young singer as well. You know, how much the relationship with the agent is, uh, what sort of houses you're dealing with, and the ability to say no at the right time. You know, if an agent or a singer deals with that in the right way, I think if anything, you... You, you make yourself even more close to that company from there. Because for me, anyway, I, I think if someone turned a job down for me because I wasn't quite ready for it, I think we've got to get them in. We've got to get them to do something else because the honesty involved and the sacrifice involved in that is such a, a, a true and authentic thing, then we've got to have them in. So I think that there's different, there's different judgments to be made. Um, so let's talk about this summer where a lot of our uh, colleagues have been not doing uh, too much because it's been impossible, but even you've non-stopped, you've been non-stop since uh, Mark. Um, we'll talk about them bit by bit. And I, I said in, when I, in the introduction that you always work for a greater good. You always look at a bigger picture in, a, in anything you do. And, and, it, and it's from a distance. It's, it's amazing. And getting to know you is even more, uh, awe inspiring really. Um, you started off lockdown with a project about notes from musicians' kitchens. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, having been involved in it yourself, I, I know that well, you Well, I, I threw a recipe in, you know. Yes, it was Although brilliant. Although it was, it was a cocktail recipe rather than... Exactly, no, but a brilliant one nonetheless. Um, <laughs> I woke up at about 4am one morning during lockdown. Where I live is very close to the sea but it's also quite quiet normally anyway, as you can hear now, there's no traffic noise, there's nothing yeah. really. Um, the dawn chorus was deafening. I mean, my dad was joking. He was like, God, I'm gonna have to get a shotgun out. Um, and you know, that it was just unbelievable. My parents lived down the road and, and it was the same by them, uh, even though they live on the sea. Normally right. you can hear the sea more than you can hear anything else. But these birds were just going frankly mental. And um, I, sort of woke up and you know when you can't get back to sleep and this idea of notes from musicians kitchens popped into my head completely fully formed including the name wow. um, and it was one of those moments where you think okay I've got to do that which the idea being that we make a cookbook um, with recipes from musicians all over the world how am I going to go about it so within half an hour I'd set up a, a Facebook page mm. and I designed a little logo just, just because I had nothing else to do. I mean, you know, it's quite easy when you're sitting in bed at four o'clock in the morning to come up with these things. Um, and within 24 hours, we had 800 musicians from all over the world in the group, throwing recipes out at people as fast as they could. And then it was fascinating because it wasn't just about the recipes. I noticed that then discussions started about food cultures, about how lockdown was for each other, mm. um, what food they couldn't get hold of, what the feeling of, um, whether there was a feeling of desperation in the community at all. Mm. It was multi-layered really. And then I thought, gosh, I can't leave it like this yeah. because it, it's something bigger than I'd expected. You know, there was me thinking I might get sort of 20 friends, like um, Lucy Schaefer being an obvious example. Who's, who who's a wonderful cook and baker, absolutely. Amazing and forager and jam maker. Um, yeah. But I, I was quite surprised, obviously, 
you know, not just with the numbers, but the fact was that it was the sheer scale of it. Mm. Um, and so then I thought, okay, we can do something here with charity. We can, if we make it a subscription resource, we can, we can raise some money for help musicians. It won't be a vast sum. Um, it, it, it can't be if you're only charging people 10 pounds per person mm. to access mm. it, but it's not, it's not just about that. It's a sort of, as I say, multi-layered thing. Um, and it was great. And, and the recipes are brilliant and it's now gone off to publishing agents. Um, and we'll see what happens, but I mean, for now, I'm happy with it as it is anyway, uh, as mm. a final. But I think it's, 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 it is very multi-layered and of course, um, the off chance is any, um, publishers listening, please get in touch with Jennifer. Um, but I think that, um, when we talked about it, cause my wife is a, a food writer, Angela, and we did a podcast with you together. And as we were talking, I mean, all three of us obviously knew this, but as we were talking, it really became more and more apparent that in that early part of lockdown, people were really missing what they couldn't have. And two of the biggest things was live entertainment and food. Suddenly food was difficult to get for, in certain areas. And, and then there was that absolute you know, immediate reaction of people, I can't get it, What's, what can I do? And, and, and we were going through the similar sort of things on, 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 in both industries, really, both professions, that, that suddenly people were noticing it more because it wasn't there. Yeah, and particularly flour. Well, so, it, came, it became the case, certainly in the UK, um, that because the plants had shut, where they made the bags that they put the flour in to sell it in the supermarket, mm -hmm. the small bags, you could only buy 15 kilo bags. Well, yeah. no family on the planet needs that amount of flour. Yes. So most people were then desperate. And then you couldn't get yeast. Yeah. So then people started to sort of use alternatives, whatever. Um, it, it was very interesting in terms of deprivation yeah. because clearly these are sort of first world problems, aren't they? Yeah. We weren't yeah. deprived in the real sense. Yeah. We weren't we weren't as a whole community lacking in much, but there were sectors of the community that were very badly hit. I mean, if you, if you were very much on the breadline anyway, mm. um, that lockdown was a nightmare, I think yeah. for some families, particularly if you're then in a position where you've either been made redundant or furloughed anyway, yeah. uh, and already didn't have a lot of income that I think it was very problematic. Um, I think also there's something about the society that the the immediacy of um, you know we can get music by clicking on to you know to Spotify in a second you know you do click and collect on shopping that suddenly when that broke down a little bit uh, not not the not the streaming music that didn't but going to see shows or whatever it just made it it just pulled it into focus a little bit more about how easy the rest of the time it is and um, you know in our particular profession which is why you'd, you know, you're raising money for help musicians. But I think, you know, you say it wasn't going to be a, a large amount, but I think it's also the, the steps being shown that this is an important thing and people need money and, and to really show that it's just as important sometimes as the money, the money raised itself. Yeah. And I think in, in the case of help musicians, the reality is that in fact, help musicians have had more donations um, beyond my Facebook or my fundraising pages because people might use calf checks or if they want to give a big donation then they will go and do that directly to the charity so um it does help the charity just in terms of publicity alone um i also think that in terms of 
the sort of awareness, I think it's very important that the public in general understand that as a sector, we've been the hardest hit and that 40% of musicians have fallen out with the government's relief schemes. And that's really tough. If you've already got problems financially to then have all your work removed in one go and be a freelancer. So you don't have any contractual security anyway, makes life really tough. I mean, there is no safety net at all. So I think raising awareness of that is, is critical. And then also hopefully getting the ear of important enough people that something can change. I mean, that's what happened with the freelancers anyway, where the government weren't intending to support freelancers until there was a group in particular in the House of Lords. So Michael Barclay and Deborah Bull, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, stepped in because they'd all heard from, well, everybody they knew practically yeah. how much this was a disaster. Yeah. And we're still facing it now. And I think it, it it's not good enough to let the government get away with you know sort of broad brush um Mm. and this bailout that they claim is going to help everybody is is has come with the advice to mothball and not make work which of course massively affects the freelance community it does but also the the thing on that is uh, that was a good headline but um and and this is what i'm saying about projects like yours you know the keeping the the help um the sos getting out there because the thing is the way even with um the bailout you know, a lot of my friends that, that are not involved in the industry at all will just say to me casually, not horribly or not meanly or anyway, saying, oh, you know, so you're okay, you'll be okay now because you've got that. I mean, Absolutely not. Well, we're not going to get anything at Holland Park. We're not getting anything of that um, because the way it's set up. And, and I think certainly the freelance, absolutely not. So I think it's a good thing to keep it in the, in the public domain, keep talking about it and keeping these projects. So why are they doing that? It's because we need this, you know, and that's one of the things we've said offline that that's one of the, the main reasons that pushed me on to producing some, some uh, nights this year, you know, we did six nights in total that that's, you know, relatively small for us, but it's still got in, in total about 90 freelancers, either a day or two days work. And that was, you know, I was saying last week, that just was a tiny bit of a kickstart of that microeconomy just to get something uh, for personal, um, worth you know what you thought yourself you're actually going to work for a day and i think there's really important stuff there to keep it to keep it going um but you had a the thing i was going to ask you about the food as well was a really big spread from geographically as well with the recipes really sort of based on on that where all your uh, musicians were coming from yeah all over the world and um obviously quite a lot of big names as well which also surprised me i thought you know people might be a bit sniffy about being involved in a project like mine um but it was quite the opposite in fact um and um there were some highly entertaining ones like stephen huff's porridge i mean stephen famously is a not is not a cook um and uh i encourage you to go and read his recipe it's hilarious um i love him very much um i found though that some of the recipes well actually a lot of them came with personal stories attached and there's some fascinating ones um there's you know daniel dondi who's a film composer's grandma's recipe for dal um tarka dal there's there's oh i mean there's all sorts i mean to the point where i'm trying to think through them because they're so vastly ranging from you know the sort of traditional comfort food that we're used to in the UK mm. to stuff that it isn't wild but it's just not the stuff that 
we we're used to and that's brilliant because it's meant then that people have got stuff to try yeah. and have carried on trying and and that's really nice too it's not really it's not sort of died a death it's it's sort of it's trundled along i just haven't accepted any more recipes i put a date on it because i always think you have to put a date on these things otherwise people will just it'll drift i'm not a big drifter i know but people can still yeah. access it now can't they oh yeah of course it'll be there where, 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 where can they access it jen www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com great so please go to that after you listen to this that would be great that would be enough for most people this summer but not jennifer johnson you put that one with the day to bed and then what did you come up with straight away you came up with another project uh, almost immediately afterwards uh, bite-sized proms yeah uh didn't really intend for that to be as big as it's become I. um I put the date on notes from musicians' kitchens and our first bite-sized prom went out the following day. <laughs> I didn't realise it was that close as yeah. that. <laughs> um, it came about because I heard the announcement about the proms and I just thought, what a shame. It's not the BBC's fault, it's just what mm. a shame for everybody that mm. here we are in a time where we need music more than ever. Yeah. And the classical music profession in particular, whose USP is live performance is being silenced. Yeah. Um, and archive proms are great, but it doesn't represent what people have been doing during lockdown or, you know, as things have eased. Mm. So I got together a little team. There's basically five of us. There's a few more as well in the background, but there's basically five of us who, you know, somebody's doing website. There's two tech people there's um i've got a number two who's brilliant um, you know that there's 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 a need for more than just me in a project like that um and i put a call out on instagram having created an account literally no one had ever heard of us obviously because it only came out of my head that morning <laughs> and um again i designed a logo and just thought oh, i'll see how we go um so put this like call to arms, I suppose, um, asking for proposals from people. And within 20 minutes of it going live, I had 19 proposals. Wow. Wow. And it just escalated and escalated to wow. the point where when we finish on Saturday, we'll have had 270 musicians involved. Wow, fantastic. And, and there'll be a, have been 125 bite-sized proms. Right. So... I'm quite proud, really. So Jen, if people haven't seen any of it, what, what format, how long does each piece, what does it take if you, if you, if you log on to so it? Con the concept behind it was that this should be sort of classical music in miniature. So sort of world-class performance in your pocket, really. Um, watchable on social media and on any phone. And it therefore was about the phone more than it was about sort of desktop Mm -hmm. website although we have that too so it's www.bitesizeproms.co.uk mm -hmm. and each day well we started off with just one prom a day thinking oh we'll be lucky to fill this eight weeks if we manage one a day i'll be happy <laughs> we're now at four or five a day <laughs> and i mean a bite-sized prom itself just to say is is one piece that lasts less than 15 minutes right because on instagram you can only play a video that's no longer than 15 minutes right okay 
So the idea was, this is a multi-layered again. So mm. the concept of, of the bite-sized prom itself was simple. So it meant that people didn't have to try very hard to be able to do one. Yeah. And you record something with your mobile phone. I mean, in fact, people haven't done that. Some people have really gone to town and it's amazing to see. Um, but also it was important, like you did with your concerts, to get people working again. And all of a sudden I had loads of messages saying, it's so brilliant to have a deadline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, that's very interesting deadline. Yeah, bed. And then I thought, well, the other thing that we're lacking, so let's say... 50% of classical music audiences are over 50. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of them may never come back into yeah. a building. We don't know. I mean, the, there are a lot of people still shielding. There's lots of people who are anxious. Well, if we lose 50% of our audiences, we have to replace them somehow. Yeah. And the thing about using social media like this is to try and develop a young audience, a new audience. Yeah. And we've been very shocked by how quickly it's developed. And our audience are mainly under 40. Right, great. have thoroughly embraced some of the slightly more sort of offbeat stuff that we've put out and have had questions about the stand, more standard repertoire. And it's been really enlightening to see, firstly, the response, but also really wonderful to see that it is possible to bring people into classical music yeah. and because our young generations of kids they're used to watching single clips they don't listen to albums anymore yeah the, that was really my thought behind bite Size prom because it, it meant that they're not faced with a marla symphony they're they're faced with a three minute song or a you know a string quartet that lasts five minutes whatever but also even through, even through lockdown, I mean, people uh, that have longer attention spans, their attention spans have got shorter. I mean, I, inc I include myself in that. I'm, I'm, you know, struggling to read as much as I would normally read, for example, in one, in one go. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, I was saying to someone the other day that I'm, I'm, I've got audio book and reading the, the same book at the same time because I, you know, I want to carry on doing it if I'm walking or something, but just go on to that and then go back to the book. So, you know, attention spans are very difficult at the moment anyway. So well, I think when, when people are under stress, yeah. it becomes quite difficult to feel that you can achieve much. Yeah. And so the other thing was everybody said, oh, it's brilliant because I can just do one piece. I don't have to do a whole recital. I can concentrate on one thing. And so um, it's got a lot of people working again that wouldn't have otherwise started. Yeah. I mean, the, there are issues, particularly with ensembles, obviously, in terms of getting themselves together. So um, there are quite a lot of our ensembles on our roster have really embraced the chance to, even though nobody's being paid, we're, mm. this is all for help musicians again, mm. um, to raise money. We're, it's sitting at about four and a half thousand at the moment that we've raised, Great. which Great. isn't small amount but it it could do better so anyone listening please donate thanks very much yeah, yeah that's great um, uh yes we've it is great i mean we're not at the end of the week yet we know that there are people waiting to donate they wanted to wait until the end you know um it was also really important to me to have not just a mixture of instruments voices and ensembles but also to have young artists yeah. so we've had a whole young artist program um, and they've been selected. We didn't have time to do an audition process of any kind. Um, it was very much a question of, for quality control purposes, um, that, that I picked the people that I felt 
had something to say yeah. and some of the stuff our young artists have produced is quite spectacular not least and has also gained quite a lot of attention for them from record companies and other mm -hmm. big players in the industry i mean right. it 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 wasn't intended for that reason but mm -hmm. but i'm pleased because there are some of them who aren't necessarily all that well known but mm -hmm. are incredibly talented and so um anybody listening that has an interest in hiring young musicians go and watch some of them because you'll be surprised and and i i was even surprised not just by the quality of their performances but how creative they all are yeah and and when given an open brief can can produce some extraordinary things so yeah. it was it's been brilliant in that sense too so that finishes on saturday that's saturday the whatever that would be the saturday the 12th well yeah, I should yeah. know that because that's Angela's birthday. So it's Saturday the twelfth. Yeah, um, um, so that's good. Um, but you, you yourself, because how have you been about singing during this period? Because have you been able to? I've talked to a few singers during the whole period. Um, you know, the sheer energy and the joy that comes with singing and all the things. Have you been able to to sing through in this period? Um, I did some at the beginning. Um, I had a. Uh, an online gig in inverted commas with the self-isolation choir recorded the messiah at home mm -hmm. i also did some i went back to my jazz roots i started as a jazz singer really um mm -hmm. when i was at university it's how i earned money was performing at balls and things mm -hmm. um and i had a private engagement online just for a, a, a company but it was for somebody's birthday and my old partner, Dave Buckley, who is now a Hollywood film composer, um, wrote a new arrangement of Every Time We Say Goodbye, the Ella Fitzgerald classic. Right, yeah. um, and um, I put that out on Facebook and everyone went, wow. And I was like, well, I wasn't expecting that. And then I got requests. <laughs> so <laughs> I did a few of them. And then I did um, an unaccompanied folk song for Glyndebourne for their Peaceful Moments series. And then I hit a brick wall. Um, and I think in my case, this had been a delayed reaction yeah. because I was so busy and I still so am so busy. Um, I don't think I'd really ingested how appallingly difficult it's all been. Yeah. Um, I'm also a lone parent. So I've had to carry the pressure of being at home with my daughter, the only adult in the house, mm. the endless weeks of just being us. And I think it was inevitable that at some point I would have a reaction. Yeah. And the thing that triggered that reaction was coming to the day of what should have been the opening night of Rake's Progress at Glyndebourne, yeah. um, which I'd had in my diary a long time. I was just so excited to do it as yeah. Barbara Turk is, I mean, it's a prime role for a mezzo. Yeah. It's in that particular production at that particular I was excited time. about seeing it, let alone in it. I mean, have that, have that taken away it hit me like a ton of bricks to be honest yeah. um it it's it's hard i don't think people un understand unless you're in the profession mm -hmm. how much of ourselves we invest in what we do yeah how much it's not about the glamour and it's not about the applause mm -hmm. um and there are things of course that that are in your diary that you think oh i'm so excited about and so that that was where I really felt it and actually since that day I've struggled to sing right. um, and I think it's getting a bit better which is going to have to because I've got to go back to work in a few weeks <laughs> um, 
um, I've got I've got a really busy October. So um, in in repertoire terms, in particular, I've got pretty much every cantata it's possible to think of in in about a week. Um, <laughs> in in live in live performance. Yes. So uh, with the Liverpool Phil Orchestra, I'm doing Fedra, the Britain cantata, yeah. and I'm doing um, the uh, world premiere of uh, uh, Athanasia Kontu won the composition prize at the mm -hmm. film last year and she's written a cantata about Antigone which is called mm -hmm. Antigone Pure in Her Crime um, and as they, they bookend each other so mm -hmm. that's that's for them and that's being live streamed as well as in person with hopefully audience mm -hmm. um, and then I'm doing a lunchtime recital for Radio 3 where I'm doing um, Ariana Anaxos, the Haydn, um, mm. uh, Schumann Maria Stuart leader, and then Frau Lieber und Leben. Wow. So that's I've got that's all within a space of about a week. <laughs> <laughs> Having been from nothing, it's like you know, zero to hero essentially. <laughs> I think at four in the morning, you better stop having brilliant ideas for the moment. Just so Well, you can... I'm still I'm afraid that that's just not the way my mind works. I am thinking about the next step because Bite Size Proms has been such a success mm. that I am going to de develop it into something else. Right, great. So I'll keep the Bite Size branding, mm. um, but it won't be Proms. It, because proms have nearly killed me doing stuff every day for eight weeks. I mean, I know, I know the feeling. yeah, we've been working sort of 12 hour days and, and I, I've got to the point where I'm sort of sick of sitting at the computer. You know, you, you, I need to go out sometimes. Um, <laughs> but the great thing about it, despite the work has been engaging with the whole music community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the lovely thing about that is how lovely everybody's been, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've had a few difficult people. Um, <laughs> the only difficult people, weirdly, have been young artists. We've had three who have, two out of the three were exceptionally rude to me. Wow. Because I was asking them if they wanted to be participating and they weren't getting a fee. Mm. Um, even though I explained it was for charity. Um, mm. they, they were very withering and difficult. Um, and the other one was just, it was just bizarre, frankly. But, so there are always people that may not like what you're doing or don't approve or whatever. Um, but you get that in every job and every sector. You do, but I think also the bigger picture, yes, I mean, we, we both absolutely believe people get paid for what they do. I know we've talked about that before, but I think there's a slightly different thing when the thing you raise your money for is to help musicians at right. this point. I think that's a, you know. Well, I, think, I mean, that's what I tried to explain. In yeah. fact, it would be really hard for me to raise money to distribute it fairly amongst the musicians because it would be so such a little amount per yeah. person. Yeah. Then also, really, it needs to go where it's needed most because the whole yeah. aim is to try and rescue people to stop them leaving the profession because yeah. that's what we're really talking about. Yeah. We're, we're talking about, you know, that people are on their knees financially and there has to be a way of... of preventing them from from disappearing or sinking or having to use food banks or you know so it, it I, for the most part everybody got it and and i think um, jen i have to say i think that that's different it would even be different even if it was a good cause if you're asking musicians to do something for another good cause it's got a slightly different um 
subtlety to it but when it's you know this is within this is this is us if you yeah, ask, it's helping each really other charity would be a little bit more difficult but when it's when it's directly to do with your colleagues and and keeping the business going i think it is a different thing um but um okay well we're gonna need to wrap up but i know you because i know you're busy you need to get off a computer <laughs> well no i need to stay on the computer sadly <laughs> but you got something you're doing other things at the moment as well aren't you Say that again, sorry. What else are you doing at the moment, apart from all that? Because I know you're busy as well. Uh, well, I mean, learning music again. I mean, there has to be a, a, a few hours a day now sitting at the piano again. Right. Um, and normal life, if it can ever be called normal. I mean, who knows? It It is very important, like everybody, that I also keep fit and don't drink too much wine and don't eat too much and you know all the normal things yeah it's just at the moment i think everybody just needs to try and survive if Mm. they can and that's a hard thing because everybody survives differently um and everybody has different requirements for survival so i think some people are coping better than others but um in, in my case, I've, I have found that the really, really important thing is to get outside. So um, I will at some point today go out for a walk. <laughs> Good. Uh, me too. Me too. But listen, Jennifer, it's a pleasure to talk to you, an inspiration to me and so many people. And okay. it's really amazing you've been doing this summer. And so it's, it's thanks for coming on here today because I know how busy you are. And uh, it's just no, great. Thanks for having me. So, Jennifer Johnson, thank you very much. You have been listening to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with James Clutton. For more information on Opera Holland Park, please visit www.operahollandpark.com.